Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We need to start planning what we're going to do for Inauguration Weekend. Oh, I was can, just going to hide in my house. Yeah, can I just pull the covers over my head? So one, I think we should all go to a secure, undisclosed location and have a designated survivor-themed party Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> as the designated survivors of the next of the, four years. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> Does that mean we have to stay in a bunker for four years? I was mostly thinking about it in terms of alcohol that could be consumed, but we could do a bunker sure, too. Sure, we could stock okay. up on that. I've been looking for a reason to replenish the bar like times 10. We could all dress up as prior designated survivors. Dibs on Madeline Allwright. <laughs> oh, no, maybe she wasn't because she wasn't born in the U.S., so she wasn't allowed to be it. Mm. Not eligible. Yeah. I want to be some ex obscure ex-interior secretary. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this is a rich area and we should start thinking about it now. Wait, who starred in the movie? Oh, Kiefer Sutherland. There you go. The show, yeah. The show, yeah. I'll Designated Survivor. I'll go as Kiefer Sutherland. Okay. Done <laughs> and done. Deal. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Dude Where's My Drone edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal, here in the Jungle Studio with my friends Tamara Kaufman Wittes and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Ben Wittes is once again... Gallivanting yeah. around the world. We are diminished. We are well. But Our you know, happiness is diminished. Yeah, it is. I mean, we've we've gotten on okay without him, but the, the chair feels empty over there. Yeah, that's true. Although, Although he, he was is, our emissary to one Ritika Singh's wedding, yeah. so he took all of the rational security hopes and dreams he to did. Thailand with him. He did, and and his Facebook pictures are making me like really just feel lesser and just like why are you sending me this why but are we rubbing, are, are drinking you your in alcohol in your office right now that's true so. <laughs> we're gonna drink all your booze yes. while you're sitting he there having goes a magical the sunset Thailand and we drink his booze what did tweet he said not thinking about trump not thinking about russia so there in the picture of the sun <laughs> it's like, you jerk don't remind us uh but ben will be back uh and a programming note uh we will be not back next week but the week after so don't look for the podcast in your feed for the week of christmas Go out, enjoy yourself, drink eggnog. Sing um, Old Lang Syne, all the verses. Yeah, definitely. We are going to see you in 2017. But before that, another slow news week, kids. Uh, a leaked memo shows, or sorry, a leaked memo lays out Trump's priorities for the Pentagon. We're going to unpack that. The Chinese return an underwater U.S. Navy drone. Very considerate of them. And what does this week's spate of terrorist attacks portend for 2017? Um, let, let's start with this this leaked memo. Well, <clears throat> memo is it, it was a a sort of a readout written up by a Pentagon official of a meeting that the Trump transition team had with people at the Pentagon. So laying out uh, what their priorities are, what was discussed at this meeting. Um, transition meetings like this are happening around Washington, although I'm told not with as great as frequency, uh, maybe we should say, as usual. Um, but they did manage to sneak one of these in before Christmas. So um, tomorrow, do you want to talk about like a little bit? Well, let's talk about. 
let's talk about what's in the memo in a bit, but maybe we should start with the the cyber component, right, of, of what this uh, lays out. Effectively, you know, the question, is the Trump administration planning to basically hand cyber strategy over to the Defense Department? Yeah, so um, this is sort of point two on the memo, which uh, essentially just says develop a comprehensive cybersecurity strategy. Um, good idea. Uh, really good plan. Good um, I wish we'd we should do that. that. Yeah. Cyber. Um, so this is something that um, Trump has really uh, a number of times that sort of putting out his um, relatively thin, um, but uh, but what cyber policy he has uh, suggested, has all um, really indicated that he views DOD as being um, sort of the leading uh, uh, body for the cybersecurity mission. Um, that's a really strange idea. Um, so one kind of... Uh, uh, most of or the majority of networks um, that are, uh, you know, of interest are are privately owned, right? Critical infrastructure, uh, communications networks. Um, uh, militarizing that civilian space is something that um, uh, we've avoided to a large degree. Um, uh, also, uh, a huge part of sort of the, the government's role in the cybersecurity mission is essentially forms of domestic law enforcement. Um, we don't like to have uh, uh, the military doing uh, domestic law enforcement. Um, we have something called the Posse Comitatus Act um, that actually only applies to the Army and the Air Force. So technically, you could you could have Marines. You do could get cyber a Navy strategy. in there, right? Or you know, um, uh, but uh, it's an indication of sort of the the, uh, the reasons why we've really uh, housed the cybersecurity mission thus far in. DHS, uh, places like the Commerce Department, sort of out of um, a recognition that um, the military's uh, role in this is a relatively limited one. Um, the other thing that, that I do think is sort of important to note, and this is something that um, that uh, Rosa Brooks actually sort of wrote a whole book on, um, and that's that uh, we see Trump again and again sort of looking to the military for his cabinet posts, for credibility, right? He sort of, um, he views them as kind of the one part of the U.S. government that works in his estimation. Um, uh, we're in a world of limited resources. And so, um, as Brooks argues in her book... How the military, um, everything became the military and the military, and the military became everything? Yes. Or had it backwards, but yes. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but basically, sort of the, the core argument being, um, uh, if you load up the military with every single mission, um, that actually is going to review reduce their efficacy, their force strength, their resources where they really, really need it. And so it's important to have clear lines about what is the job of the military and what is not. Um, so this is sort of, again, uh, he hasn't put it in concrete policy terms yet, so it's hard to sort of specifically criticize, but the instinct just seems really, really off. Yeah, so I think a couple things about this memo just overall. First of all, it's second or maybe even third hand. So it's a memo written by a current Pentagon official describing what he was told the, tr the president-elect's priorities are by a staffer on the Trump transition team. It's not clear that any of this came from the Secretary of Defense designate, uh, General Mattis. It's not clear where it comes from other than this individual staffer. So I honestly don't know how authoritative to take this second-hand description of priorities. Um, the second thing to note is that <laughs> in a lot of ways, the heart of this memo, not just the, the four priorities that are laid out, but the other narrative that's in there about the questions and issues that this staffer, uh, Mira Ricardell, was raising, is that they just go to core Republican tenants about an approach to the Defense Department. I mean... 
Okay. Priority one is develop a strategy to defeat, destroy ISIS. Priority whoa, whoa. two. I thought he already had the super secret plan to defeat ISIS. Yeah, but he wants to listen to the generals. That because makes they, sense. He they has don't know the plan. As much as don't he worry. Does. He still has the plan, but yeah. he wants them to come up with one as well. Right. Okay, so part right. 1A is, and then compare to my secret plan. Sure, exactly. sure, sure. Um, but priority two is build a strong defense, eliminate the caps from the Budget Control Act. Well, what a shocker. This has been a tenant of Republican policy on defense for years, which is just increase the defense budget. Whatever the problem is, grow the military and that will solve it. Um, number three is develop a comprehensive USG cyber strategy. It doesn't specify a DOD-led one. So this is a priority that's cited as a priority for the Department of Defense, but it doesn't say explicitly DOD is going to have the lead. And I think for all the reasons you note, Susan, this is fraught, very, very fraught for the Defense Department and undoubtedly Defense Department professionals would take note of things like, hey, the Posse Comitatus Act. Um, and then priority four is find greater efficiencies. In other words, we really want to increase your budget, but please don't waste it. Make us look good the way you spend the money. Tell us what to cut. So, you know, when I when I read through these four priorities, two of them are just about money, 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 um, which is the basic partisan debate over defense that's been going on for decades. There's just nothing very new here. Yeah, and, and what two things that stood out of this to me too. One, um, and this was foreign policy got a hold of this of this memo and as their headline noted, Russia was nowhere was not mentioned anywhere on the list. Um, uh, other countries I guess were mentioned according to the memo in conversations, but Russia didn't come up. Now that doesn't mean that it's not going to be a priority, but I think it sort of adds one more layer to a lot of people's anxieties about this incoming administration and the Russians. So let's you know kind of note that for, for present purposes. Although, isn't it also true that transition teams usually focus on structure and organization yeah, and budget right. more than they focus on policy? Sure. And like you would imagine that like, yeah, we're going to have a Russia policy. I guess I guess the question is everyone's – a lot of people are getting very nervous about what that Russia policy might be, including Republicans in, you know, in the Senate like Lindsey Graham and John McCain who want to investigate the hacks. Um, but the notion of developing – Develop a comprehensive USG cyber strategy. You know, look, I'm not going to carry water for any administration, but the Obama administration did come in with an effort to develop a comprehensive U.S. government cyber strategy. And about five months into the administration, did release a plan that many people felt didn't go far enough, but was the first time that an administration had really, in a public way, and I think George W. Bush gets some credit for this when he was on the way out the door, trying to coordinate these efforts. And what struck me was... Yeah, but it's not a winning plan. We need more winning. (laughs) We need more winning. It's not winning. I don't... I mean, I I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that I doubt that Donald Trump or really probably anybody in the transition team have given a lot of research into what there is in the way of a comprehensive USG approach to cybersecurity. There are lanes of the road. There are lanes of authority. This is not, you know, this is not unpaved road we're going over here. And it just strikes me that this is either sort of them taking maybe a shot at at this without having done the homework, or is it, do they really believe that there is something lacking in the current strategy and that there's nuance they want to add? And if so, like, please don't hide it from us, like come out with it. But I just, something tells me that they really haven't thought it through that far. Yeah. Like I, I very much treat it as just a sort of amateur. They aren't aware Cyber's of what's out there. Out Cyber's there. important. We like DOD, you know, you I guys suck. We should beat it. it. Yeah. Um, uh, right. Obviously there are, um, we should beat it. 
there are lots of plans, um, yeah. sort of cybersecurity strategies. Um, the difficulty is, of course, effective implementation. Um, the one place in which uh, I, I think the Trump administration is going to run into a real challenge is that um, there is growing consensus, certainly within the U.S. government, but even within the private sector, um, that there's going to have to be some regulatory piece of this, um, that uh, there is uh, an existing market failure. Um, so sort of the um, the Obama administration love rainbows and voluntary information sharing um, has not uh, solved, the, you know, for example, the onslaught of large scale data breaches, sort of um, uh, the almost daily occurrences of, um, of really significant cybersecurity events that we know how to how to address and, res- and resolve, right? So people just are not um, investing in security, undertaking the mitigations they need to. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think if uh, if Clinton had won, even if um, a more conventional, shall we say, Republican had won, um, there would have been expectations that we would see things like enhanced FTC regulatory authority, um, uh, right, to try and um, uh, enforce force against companies that failed to protect consumers. because Trump has sort of given this like broad anti-regulatory instincts, they've said, you know, for every one new regulation, we're going to get rid of two others. Um, uh, one would imagine he might be more hostile to um, to those kinds of activities. Uh, certainly Silicon Valley might now see an opening to avoid regulatory action um, where they had previously considered it potentially inevitable. Um, and so that's going to be an area in which uh, look, um, maybe we'll see a smaller sort of, uh, um, you know, regulatory or enforcement piece here. Um, uh, but whenever it comes to implanted medical devices, autonomous vehicles, I mean, areas in which... Uh, this is just not stuff DOD could do anyway. Right. So if, one, it's not stuff we would expect DOD to do. And two, the notion of like, don't worry, the private sector is going to regulate itself into safety. These are the areas in which most people believe that the government has a significant role in in setting safety standards. Um, the question is whether or not Trump's administration is going to develop a, uh, a comprehensive plan at the outset to get in front of the issue, or if they're going to sort of dilly-dally trying to reinvent the wheel, um, reinvent, uh, uh, you know, there's been 50 of these wheels that have now been invented, um, uh, and then there will be some sort of major episode that's going to catalyze things uh, and will get uh, potentially more reactionary policy um, uh, just the lack of of thought and, frankly, the fact that nobody has been brought in um, that has sort of clear credentials in this space, right? So the appointment of a senior official, an advisor, somebody to the national security staff, anybody that sort of indicates, hey, we take cyber seriously. Um, uh, we want someone who knows the area. Uh, we want someone who, you know, can signal a little bit of our, our policy in, uh, instincts here. Um, we aren't seeing any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is 30 days before the inauguration, I think pretty troubling. Yeah, and, they, and it's not as if they haven't been, or the administration hasn't been preparing them for taking these over. About a week ago, the White House and NSC led a series of tabletop exercises which had been announced, one of which was running people through the drill of what happens in a major cyber attack. The Trump transition team people attended that, about half a dozen of them, in order to prepare for a drill that they're going to do in January on this topic. you know, it, it, And they clearly seem to recognize it's a priority issue if they're flagging it in a meeting. But I, I mean, I agree with you, Susan. There's not anything else in the way of signaling of how we're going to approach this vis-a-vis some new position or appointing somebody at DHS. Um, it's sort of still an open question against, of course, the backdrop of you know the president-elect still not 
believing that, you know, Russia hacked U.S. political organizations. Well, and given how many different parts of the federal government could and perhaps should be potentially involved in a truly comprehensive U.S. government cybersecurity strategy, you know, where in the it's really it's actually not practicable to locate the lead for this in any one agency, whether it's DOD or DHS, which suggests that this is going to have to be somewhere in the White House. Um, and, you know, given how little we yet see about the national security structure that the White House is going to have um, under President Trump and, and National Security Advisor Flynn, you know, it's it's hard to know how they could even build the capacity to handle this. Right. And I mean, one sort of final observation on, on you know, these exercises and sort of lessons learned, having seen a number of them uh, uh, while in the government, um, the lesson that is always learned every single time is the importance of relationships. Um, the single most important thing is having somebody who knows who to pick up the phone and call in an event. Um, uh, and so to the extent that um, either the transition period or Trump's sort of tendency for outsiders or people without experience um, uh, makes it less likely that the people who are in the seats that need to make decisions are going to know who they can call, who they can trust, who's in what role. Um, those kinds of personal relationships that have been identified as a critical part of cyber incident response, um, that's going to be less likely. And so if there is a, a serious event, um, uh you know, the, the odds of it going sort of sideways uh, are only heightened unless unless they figure out how to sort of close that gap uh, and very, very quickly. So question to you guys, has President-elect Trump said anything about who's going to take on that White House senior counterterrorism role that uh, was John Brennan's role and then Lisa Monaco's role? No, but that – well, there's a Heritage Foundation <clears throat> white paper that's come out uh, – that sort of lays out the strategy, suggested strategy for the NSC structure, and it was tipped to me that they may be using this in the transition as a guide, and it actually lowers the stature of that position. It would create a sort of, you know, one more layer in the hierarchy. That person would be purporting to Flynn, but no, nobody's been named. Mm-hmm. So Watch that space. Um, okay. The Chinese very graciously returned a Thanks. underwater, unmanned underwater vehicle, a UUV. In fact, found I think a the little... whole thing was so graciously handled just from so start nice. to finish. They this found little drone, lost drone little wandering lost drone. out in the open ocean. In international waters. And Clearly they... lost. Yeah. It had tags on, though. It was wearing a collar. And they and did they, exactly. And they, and they said, hey, did anybody lose a drone? <laughs> is, this, is this your drone? <laughs> is this your drone? Is that the chip? We have it? your drone. That, no, that's the way it's supposed to work. Right. Didn't happen that way. Um, I'm just imagining that after the Chinese... Hold this. First, I'm imagining the Chinese like literally like just hauling this thing up while like sailors on its mothership are yelling, hey, give our drone back. What the <laughs> hell do you think that you're doing? Uh, but then returning it back with like the words one China written on it. <laughs> <laughs> CC President elect Trump. Uh, uh, so no, you think it was a message? Oh, I think it was a little bit of message, a little <laughs> bit of messaging there. So, I mean, obviously, look, this is, I mean, it's, it's not every day that the, uh, the, you know, a foreign Navy seizes a sovereign vessel, which cute little submarine with wings is a sovereign vessel. Even of though the it is States. Un- unpiloted, is unpiloted. That what it's called? Unpiloted. Yeah. So, uh, they obviously took that, returned it after a couple of days. Uncrewed. 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 Because it's a naval vessel. Yeah. I like that. I like that very much. Um, you know, how 
Look, I read this, and I'd like to know what you guys think, as, as, as a, obviously it's provocative. It seems pretty low stakes. I mean, the drone does not seem to have been, at it least. It wasn't tortured. It wasn't tortured. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it was, an, it was mapping the undersea floor, which, I mean, of course you do for knowing where your submarines, your manned submarines can and can't go, and there's intelligence value to that, but a perfectly legitimate oceanographic mapping mission in international waters. Um, it seems like it is designed to send a message, right, to the United States about, you know, where we, if you're going to get, if you're going to push on us vis-a-vis Taiwan or trade wars or whatever our sort of laundry list of things is, we can give it to, we will, you know, take these provocative steps. It didn't escalate into an international crisis. And I think even Trump said something to the effect of like, you know, keep it. They can keep it. They can keep it, uh, which I'm not sure what to make of that. I but, didn't want that drone anyway. Right. I have a better one. And you Christmas. can't come to my birthday party. But how are you guys reading this? Yes, look, I do think that um, it's it's a little bit of a lesson in all things being related, right? That um, if we decide we want to be aggressive on Taiwan, um, uh, China might decide that they're going to be aggressive on um, pushing their South China Sea claims. Um, uh, so uh, one of sort of the, you know the the relevant uh, legal features here is um, is whether or not the drone was um, operating in international waters or within uh, China's exclusive economic zone. Um, so under UN clause, the United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea, yes, um, which the United States is actually not a party to, um, uh, but had long hoped, uh, there's been uh, hopes that the United States would ratify that, um, I think less likely uh, under a Trump administration. Um, this question of uh, where, who is doing what and where, and who is allowed to prevent people from doing what and where, um, uh, that has caused a lot of, um, uh, of tension uh, uh, between uh, China and its neighbors and between the United States that is interested in um, uh, enforcing uh, 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 the acceptance of those norms. Um, so, of course, there is um, disputes uh, over the Scarborough Shoal uh, area um, uh, that China claims um, uh, as its territory that generates its own um, uh, exclusive economic zones and territorial waters. Um, uh, there's there's recently been um, a tribunal, uh, an arbitrational award um, uh, that was awarded to the Philippines against the Chinese. Um, that was very significant. Um, so in terms of what message is being sent here, it, it could be um, further uh, further evidence that they are um, uh, not recognizing uh, uh, this arbitration award, right? So sort of pushing back on that. Um, uh, it can be, uh, you know, just additional sort of um, uh, signaling that, hey, um, uh, if you want to be aggressive with us, we can be aggressive back to you. Um, one thing that I think was really interesting is um, Trump's sort of um, Twitter diplomacy back that, uh, well, you know, China can diplomacy. just go ahead and, and keep the drone. You know, I do think this raises the question of um, uh, if countries undertake this kind of low-level activity to signal, and Trump is too obtuse um, uh, or, or uh, willfully obtuse um, uh, in refusing to get that message, um, whether or not we are going to see countries escalating um, uh, uh, rather rapidly into doing things that are certainly going to get his attention. Um, uh, you know, that's an area in which um, uh, you can ignore other world powers, um, uh, maybe without consequence, um, until you can't anymore. Um, and so I do think it's sort of consequential to keep an eye on on uh, sort of whether or not we're seeing any indications of Trump starting to be willing to take China's messages seriously um, because they're warning signs. OK, so I think that's a really, really interesting point to end on, because, you know, 
whether the seizure of the drone was a signal in response to Trump's call to the president of Taiwan or not, um, it clearly, because of the immediate physical context, geographical context in which it took place, was a certain kind of message about naval operations in the South China Sea, which, as we know, are disputed every day. Um, and in fact, the U.S. vessel that had released this drone and the, and the other drone that was with it has been involved in, I think, three, maybe even four other um, confrontations with Chinese naval vessels and Chinese fishing vessels over the years. So, you know, in and of itself, there's not necessarily anything new here. And we don't need to read into this that it's a response to something Trump did or something that the United States did. It could just be part of that broader pattern. But I think your point, Susan, that, you know, even if it wasn't that initially, if countries try to send signals through seemingly minor actions, they do that for a reason. They do it because they want to test and see what kind of response they get. But these are also things that because of their relatively small stakes can be resolved fairly easily. We see this with the Iranians as well, which often find small ways to confront American naval forces in the Persian Gulf, for example. Um, but then, you know, it can be easily de-escalated. And so the point that if on the U.S. side there's a refusal to respond to the signal, um, that very easily could lead to escalation because the point isn't about the drone, right? The point isn't the point is about the South China Sea or the point is about the broader relationship. And the same is true with the Iranians in the Gulf. The same is true in other um, parts of the world. And so, I, you know, this is yet another example of unintended escalation risks that are attendant on um, a situation in which the American leadership is seemingly unrecognized, it's seemingly unable to recognize the significance of certain actions in context. Um, and, you know, some people would say this is willful uh, and, and say, well, great, he shouldn't respond to every provocation. This is a great way to keep the United States out of messes. But I think your point is that actually it could create bigger messes. And that's a very important point. Right. And that, um, you know, that this is sort of coming back to, I think, what is um, the persistent and will be persisting theme of the Trump administration. Um, and that's that expertise really matters. Um, uh, we have um, we're in an enormously complex situation um, with China in the South China Sea alone. Um, so one really complex legal questions about, uh, you know, sort of the, the right of a sovereign to conduct intelligence activity in international waters, uh, recognitions of territorial spaces, uh, ratification of, of international law and treaties. Um, uh, also, um, uh, confrontations between the U.S. Navy and um, and what's known as China's maritime militia, right? So these sort of small fishermen, um, these small boats that go out and basically provoke these very large U.S. naval vessels. And um, there hey, are... These are just small businessmen defending their Exactly. Rights. They just feel very strongly about the official position of the Chinese state government. Um, you know, and so this is an area in which um, uh, having intelligence, for example, to uh, to let you know whether or not that um, that small fisherman was actually, uh, uh, you know, a military officer um, uh, uh, is significant. Um, but it's an area in which we're seeing um, lots and lots of, of potentially consequential confrontations. Um, uh, right? You're, um, uh, one of the norms that's being violated is actually um, safe navigation, right? Um, 
these very large Navy boats are actually uh, difficult to maneuver. Um, and so you, whenever you hear people talking about um, the risks here, um, uh, you know, the Navy talks about a fear of somebody being killed, right? That, that something's going to happen. These are small boats against large boats. Um, um, we're already in this very sort of um, perilous, potentially powder keg-esque situation. Um, and so it's not uh, improbable or impossible that we would see some kind of um, rapidly evolving emergency um, that sort of just comes from that space. Um, if this is an area in which uh, either Trump has already transgressed uh, the sort of status quo norms in an area in which we are having confrontation, um, uh, this is this is an area in which we could see escalation occur very, very rapidly and very, very consequentially. Um, and so sort of the, the, the first time this comes up, uh, uh, you know, Trump sort of his his indication or, or sort of his instinct is to, is to go with his gut and fire off a, a somewhat silly tweet like we didn't even want that drone anyway. Um, you know, it's further concern um, that if a crisis emerges, we're not going to be prepared to responsibly handle it. What do you guys think are the chances that <clears throat> putting aside, you know, his history of behavior and the way he uses social media to chime in on these events and to try and set an agenda and to frame the discussion that come January 20th, he really severely ratchets it back, either because he has some understanding or realization that you can't do that anymore, or it's not wise, or he's just too busy. Or do we just presume this is a feature of yeah. Don't worry, baby. This time I really mean it. I've really changed. Right, right. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I think this is a feature, not a bug. I think the presidency has a bully pulpit. That traditionally is exercised through speeches and press conferences, but he's got a bully pulpit already on Twitter. Uh, and is very happy to use it. And there, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't view his Twitter platform as very much a part of his presidential bully pulpit and continue to use it. What I find troubling about the tweeting now is not that. What I find troubling is that actually all these international incidents are occurring when we have a duly authorized president of the United States who is engaged in policy on behalf of all of us, including on behalf of Donald Trump, who may be the president-elect but hasn't been sworn in yet. He's been selected by the people, but he has no authority, legal or otherwise. And, you know, I called it on Twitter the other day, our no running with scissors rule, that we only have one president at a time. But there's a reason for that, which is that nobody in the world should have any question about what the policy of the United States is and who speaks it. And the person who speaks it is the constitutionally authorized, duly elected and sworn in president of the United States. And until January 20th at noon, that person is Barack Obama. To me, it's extremely troubling that the president-elect is inserting himself, not just once, but repeatedly and almost on a daily basis, into international issues where the only role he can play is one of sowing confusion. It, there is nothing constructive about it, not for him, and not for the man who's currently sitting in the Oval Office, and not for the United States. Right. And I mean, the other thing that got sort of a lot of attention this weekend was, of course, um, his initial tweet um, before the They Can Just Keep It was, uh, uh, China stole our drone. This was an unprecedented act 
U-N-P-R-E-S-I-D-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-E-N-T-
periods of presidential transition frequently make people in the security community very nervous about our vulnerabilities. Obviously, these are things that are happening overseas. But um, I'd be curious to get you guys' thoughts on what do we make and how do we connect, if at all, this sort of spate of attacks and what this means for 2017. I mean, is this, we go through these cycles, obviously, and it's tempting to see these as a ramp up to something. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But, you know, tomorrow, I'd I'd love to know how you responded to seeing all these events in sequence. And and, and, and one of them, at least the assassination, carried out in this utterly horrific way. On yeah, in a, in a really dramatic and, and really quite shocking way, not just the, the video uh, of the gunman coming up behind the ambassador as he was giving a speech, shooting him point blank, and then remaining in the camera frame, you know, shouting and waving his gun around uh, as the ambassador was bleeding out on the floor next to him. So it, it was shocking in that sense. It was shocking, too, in the incredible breach in security that allowed this guy who was apparently a former police officer, an off-duty police officer, to enter the building with his weapon. He refused to go through the metal detector. And because he was had this police affiliation, they let him in anyway. He was then pacing back and forth behind the ambassador. There's an audience, okay? The ambassador's speaking at a podium, and he's walking back and forth behind the ambassador prior to pulling out his gun and shooting him. Nobody and no one him. stops him. No one finds that to be odd or threatening or, or even curious. So it, it's shocking in a lot of ways. Um, it's <laughs> And in a country like Turkey, which has suffered significant terrorist attacks in recent months, it's really quite surprising how lax... Uh, the arrangements here apparently were and, uh, and really quite troubling. Um, but more broadly, I think, you know, this is a liminal period in a lot of different ways. Um, presidential transitions are tricky moments, uh, in international relations in all kinds of ways, as we've been discussing. Sometimes adversaries, particularly state adversaries, take advantage of what they assume to be a lame duck president who is therefore constrained in certain ways in responding to their actions, um, or a new president who's yet uncertain. Uh, and so it's, it's quite normal almost or regular that we see adversary nations testing American resolve, uh, in a period of transition. But what we have here are non-state actors, multiple non-state actors, it appears. Um, the Aden bombing, I believe, was carried out by uh, an al-Qaeda affiliate. Uh, the Berlin attack was claimed by ISIS, but we really don't know. Um, and we don't yet know, really, who was behind the assassination of Ambassador Karlov in Ankara. So I think what we really have here may be more of um, a different kind of opportunism, okay, that... Terrorist groups look for soft targets. They look for um, opportunities that open up that they can exploit relatively quickly. We are not seeing the kind of long-term planning and preparation that went into the 9-11 attacks. What Mm -hmm. we're seeing are opportunistic attacks of all kinds that don't require a great deal of advanced planning or financing or coordination. And, uh, And so maybe this is just, you know, bad things come in threes, and this is when... Uh, each of these uh, groups had the the opportunity to strike. The other thing, of course, in terms of context, is the the Russian Iranian uh, Syrian assault on Aleppo has obsessed audiences around the world, particularly uh, audiences of Muslims around the world who are watching uh, their brethren being slaughtered uh, by 
um, by these three governments and and Hezbollah, uh, the Shia militia. Um, and it's transfixed audiences around the world. It's been a great recruiting tool for jihadists, including ISIS, but also others. And so that also, you know, creates additional incentive for these movements to use this moment to grab that attention and to demonstrate that they're fighting back. And so it may be that that's what's going on and it actually doesn't have anything to do with the transition at all. I mean, one thing I do think is notable um, is that uh – uh, you know, these are three very different um, uh, acts with um, very different targets um, uh, and very different um, political or non-political motivations. So there's a little bit of a temptation in the United States to sort of view everything as terrorism, as if that's the same thing, um, uh, right? Sort of that the, the solutions are the same and it's all part of this like this identical systemic problem um, as opposed to uh, sort of putting things in their approach. Appropriate or, or proper context. Um, so, sort of two things. One, um, you know, the gunman uh, uh, in Turkey um, uh, referenced Aleppo, um, sort of in his rant uh, following uh, the assassination. Um, uh, you know, obviously, um, uh, you know, it, it's it's crucial that that sort of um, uh, the diplomatic core around the world is able to conduct their um, you know activity in, in security and in peace. You know, that's um, uh, this is certainly an opportunity to kind of put aside our differences with Russia and um, reaffirm our commitment to uh, to the importance of, of being able to have uh, uh, nonviolent, uh, peaceful, productive engagements. Although I note that the Turks and Russians have now continued continued their discussions over Syria with the Iranians, but without the United States. Right. And have also mutually concluded that it was Gulenists who were behind this, which is right. awfully convenient. And therefore convenient. it's our fault since he's living in Pennsylvania. Mm. Right. Um, but sort of, you know, right. one feature that, that obviously that um, at least from sort of the uh, the gunman's purported, uh, uh, you know, or stated rationale um, really is about sort of uh, uh, that particular uh, geopolitical uh, uh, context and, and, and that specific activity um, quite different um, potentially than uh, uh, the motivations of the attacker in Berlin, who is, of course, um, uh, uh, was directed against civilians and sort of in a marketplace. Obviously, ISIS has claimed uh, uh, credit. Um, once again, we have Donald Trump weighing in, um, not waiting for the facts to emerge, um, but sort of calling it Islamic terrorism. Um, uh, uh, he did not note um, that on the same day as the Berlin attacks, there was a shooting um, at, an, at an Islamic <clears throat> prayer center in Zurich. Um, uh, fortunately, nobody was killed, although multiple people were shot. Um, uh, but that uh, once again, this is an uh, uh, you know this is an area in which. Um, the the facts really matter. The details matter. Um, uh, it is uh, consequential to be uh, fast and wrong, as it is to be slow and right. Right. This is um, uh, there's a tension in sort of wanting to uh, uh, get your mind around the situation, um, have a president weigh in, um, come up with sort of a response, um, uh, versus um, shooting your mouth off before uh, before you actually know what's going on. Um, whenever we talk about sort of the vulnerability of the transition period, um, uh, typically that's a vulnerability to to, to sort of homeland attacks, um, and that's the concern. Obviously, the inauguration is always a big target. Holidays are typically um, um, sort of uh, uh, times of, of heightened sort of concern. Um, uh, I think it does raise the sort of question of um, uh, the Trump administration and its first crisis. Um, 
uh, and whether or not they are learning lessons, um, uh, either security lessons or also um, resilient response lessons, um, as they see these events occur around the world in their transition period um, of the complexities of these issues, of the importance of, um, of clear messaging to populations, right? So we see Angela Merkel getting out, um, giving very clear sort of comforting statements to her population, uh, whether or not they're going to learn those lessons, because um, if God forbid something occurred here, um, they're going to need to uh, already have a plan in place um, that's something more sophisticated than misspelled tweets and saying the words Islamic terrorism. You know, I guess I would just add one thing, which is that as we record, there is still a full month left in the Barack Obama presidency. And although um, there's a general assumption that lame duck presidents don't, you know, start major new engagements or respond in major ways to international uh, events as they're getting ready to leave office. It's not unprecedented. You know, George H.W. Bush began the American deployment in Somalia right around this time at the end of his uh, term in office. And and Bill Clinton then picked it up and escalated and expanded. And everything worked out great. Mm. And it, right. Everything worked out great. But the, the point being that I think adversaries should not underestimate America's ability to respond simply because we are at the tail end of our rather long transition. Okay, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Tamara, you want to go first? Okay, well, I have a sort of historical object lesson. Um, I don't remember whether I've mentioned on the podcast before that I'm uh, at the beginning, I'm embarking on a new uh, research project for a new book that I'm writing on the history of America's relationships with autocratic allies. And uh, and I'm starting out my my history. It's a recent history. I'm starting out at the end of the Reagan administration. And so uh, I, I have spent my wor- my week this week reading up first on Carter for context and now on Reagan. And so my object for the week is this... Uh, collection of essays and speeches by Jean Kirkpatrick entitled The Reagan Phenomenon. It was published, I believe, in 1982. And it, um, you know, Jean Kirkpatrick, of course, was a Democrat who was appointed by President Reagan as permanent rep to the United Nations, where she served for a couple of years. Um, But she what she really was, was an explicator of uh, the neoconservative approach to foreign policies, the the Reagan approach to internationalism and particularly as it relates to human rights and democracy, a major figure in debates of that era over what Reagan's should what Reagan's attitude should be toward autocratic adversaries and autocratic allies. Um, and so I, you know, it it's a bit sentimental, I suppose, but also instructive at this moment of presidential transition here to look back at a mother at another moment that was seen as a radical shift in direction in American foreign policy and American domestic policy. Uh, a, a governor, former governor, elected president, but w- somebody who was seen as relatively inexperienced and ignorant on foreign affairs with some very bold and outlandish ideas uh, supported by people who were termed ideologues and uh, and a lot of very fierce debates over foreign policy. So it's kind of fun this week to revisit those debates and see how they echo uh, in our current era. I wonder if Nikki Haley is reading that book. <laughs> she should be. <laughs> she could do worse. Yeah, easily. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so my object lesson is an undersea vessel, although not an unmanned drone in the South Give China it back. Sea. It is. Just give it back. Um, it is uh, the Gup B, um, a vehicle featured in uh, the children's television show The Octonauts. Um, so as longtime listeners of the show uh, are aware, I have a toddler. Um, and we uh, have been trying to get him to tell us what he wants from Santa this year. Um, this is the first year he understands kind of Santa Claus, Santa brings toys. Um, you know, all right, he's, he's into it. Um, so he has announced that he wants this very specific vehicle. Great. Excellent. Um, uh, you know, we really sort of talk this up. Um, unfortunately, I did not purchase this vehicle at the time. And in uh, the interim period, it sold out, um, not only on Amazon, but in every toy store in the greater Washington, D.C., oh, Maryland, Susan. and Virginia area. Oh, Susan. Because apparently these marketers are very good. They've penetrated the consciousness of every two to three year old. Uh, so um, my husband and I, over the past sort of week and a half, have been running a relatively sophisticated influence operation against our child in order to try and convince him that he does not want the gut B. He wants a different vehicle from the show, which is available on Amazon and happened to be on sale. Neither here nor there. I hope you went ahead and bought it just in case. We did. We did. Preemptive strike here. And I've come to learn that, um, you know, obviously I, I researched sort of uh, uh, Russian efforts carefully. You know, I, I want to be good at this. Um, I've learned, one, um, my kid is less susceptible to propaganda and manipulation than the population of the United States of America. Put him in charge. Um, so <laughs> I both feel good and bad about that. Um, but uh, a happy ending we have located after a trip to Loudoun County, Maryland. Um, we have located the guppy. Wow. So it will be under our Christmas tree. You did. Oh. Damn it. And he will play with it for 45 seconds. Um, but someday he will come back and listen to the archives of uh, rational security and effort to know his mother better. And he'll realize son, how much you loved him. <laughs> I loved you enough that after a, a screaming match with your father at 11 o'clock at night, one of us drove to get you your gut B. So, Aww. so clean your room or or move out. Merry Christmas, kiddo. Do something nice and yes. Good for you. <laughs> he doesn't know how much he's loved. Um, all right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. The last podcast of 2016, you guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Don't forget to leave us a Christmas gift with a five-star rating and a review. And you know our 100th episode is coming up really soon. Is it really? Yeah. I noticed you said Christmas gift. That's because the war on Christmas is over now. Right. We're allowed to say Merry Christmas now, Susan. Thank God. Thank Jesus. Um, you celebrate whatever way. You can make it a Hanukkah gift. Happy it could be Diwali, a Kwanzaa people. thing, a Diwali thing, as long as it has five stars. And a star is a symbol of the season. It is. Whatever. Lights, Star of David, Christmas, just put it on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever. And you, too, will be rewarded in kind. An Give angel me. will get its wings. Sure it will. <laughs> ring, ring. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RITL Security. I probably said that. Just leave five stars, please, for God's sake. Um, our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. Our show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by Donald Trump and the uncrewed Twitter stream. No. I like it, but Uncrewed. only if it's a little double entendre. Yeah, there's no crew, it's just him. 
Okay. It's him against the world. Okay. Uncrude? No, it's not uncrude. It's definitely crude. It's not really crude, actually, now that I think about it. Not usually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, lightly crude. (laughs) It's light, sweet crude. crude. It's light, sweet crude. (laughs) 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 With music performed, actually, by Sophia Yan. On behalf of myself and our absent friend Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, and everybody here at Rational Security, happiest of holidays, prosperous 2017, and we'll see you in the new year. Bye-bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 